Now, uh, this morning we're going to do it a little bit differently before we take communion. Um, uh, Andy was doing two sem- one of two of his seminars was going to be the theology of, of play and the theology of work. And uh, he was um, t- preaching, telling me his theology of work seminar. And I, I just thought there was some stuff in there that would be so helpful, so good. I found it quite inspiring uh, that I asked him, we cancelled it, and I've asked him to do it as this session. Uh, he's going to cut it down a bit uh, so it doesn't go the full time, but it's going to be, um, I think it's something that's really important, some really good stuff. So we're taking a little chance that on the morning of day five, before we break bread, uh, you're awake enough uh, to follow this. Um, and uh, why don't you come up, little one? Come on, come to daddy. There we are. And, uh, all right. Good. So you're going to read from various books? Uh, well, I was actually just going to recommend a couple of books at the start, because basically everything I'm going to say I've stolen from these two books. And I need to say that as a disclaimer. We couldn't afford Tim Keller, so we spent £10 on his book, and I've read it. And uh, it's very good. So it's called Every Good Endeavour by Tim Keller. It's all about work. And the other one's a book called Thank God It's Monday by Mark Green, and that is also really excellent. So I just need to say at the start, none of this is original Croft. Um, or Croft original. <laughs> Croft original, that's right. It's the sherry. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. Um, we, we, we'd also like to recommend my books as well, wouldn't we? Would we? All right, you pray what for yourself then, pray for yourself. <laughs> Oh, but the pray pray last time was so moving. I, um, why don't I pray? Go and sit down. Why don't I pray? Father, uh, we do ask that on this, on this final morning of momentum, Lord, um, even if we are a little tired, Lord, we pray that you would speak to each one of us from your word and that you'd make things clear to us as we begin to look home and uh, back to everything that waits us there. Amen. Amen. Cool. So I wasn't joking when I said I've stolen everything from those two books. Uh, Do have a look at them. But as I've looked into this subject, I found it totally fascinating. And part of the reason I found it fascinating is I've just never really thought about a theology of work before. And for many of us, work can be just really, really hard, can't it? So um, I don't know how many of us are heading back to jobs and we've got to start work again tomorrow morning. But probably there aren't many of us that are looking forward to that. And often work can seem to be a bit of a drag. It can be this thing that we have to endure and we're stuck in a job because we can't get a better job or we can't get a different job. And so we spend our Monday to Friday counting the clock, waiting until, uh, waiting until Friday night comes and then we can break for the weekend. And for many of us, work can simply be this necessary evil that we endure in order to get enough money to live and in order to have a bit of time off and a bit of leisure time. And it can be the same if we're students, even if we're not working necessarily in in a full-time job. Even if we're students, it can be the same thing. The degree can seem like an interruption to our sleep. And, well, lectures are not always that, are they? But degrees can seem like these things that are, okay, well, here I am, and I'm having fun, I'm getting life experience, but I also have to get my degree on the side. And often we don't really um, make connections in our head between Excel spreadsheets and Jesus. 
and geography exams and the gospel. And it can be hard to try and draw those connections. And so part of the point of this seminar is really to try and figure out whether or not there is another way of looking at work other than this, this evil drudgery that we have to endure before we can retire. And whether the Bible has something to say on that. And I want to suggest that it does. And in the context of when I'm talking about work, I'm not just going to be talking about, I'm largely going to be talking about employment and, and student work, but it's not simply work that's paid. So uh, in, in our kind of economic climate, we, all, we always think of work as employed work, but I'm not just talking about work that's paid. So if you're a student, you work when you do your degree, but obviously that's not paid. Similarly, if you find yourself uh, looking at a stay-at-home parent, a dad or a mom staying at home, then that involves work. That involves a lot of hard work. So I'm just talking about work on one level in general, although most of the examples that I'll give will be to do with um, employed work. So does the Bible have anything to say on it? And uh, I think it has a lot to say. And I just want to start by reading a verse from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. And Timothy writes, or Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And right there we hear at the start that scripture is useful and helpful, not just for people who go off to be missionaries in Africa, or people who work full-time in church ministry, which will never be most of us. It's useful for us if we work at H&M, or if we work in the music industry, or if we work uh, in, as a mechanic, scripture is useful for every good work. It has something to say for all of us. And the mistake that we can sometimes make is that we compartmentalize our lives. And if we're working nine to five, or if we are students, what we can think about the God stuff is we can think the God stuff is when I go to see you, and it's when I'm trying to actively evangelize or something like that, or it's when I volunteer at church. And then the other stuff, the degree or the, uh, the job that we do, that's just another section of my life that I just have to get through so that I can serve God with the rest of my life. And we turn our lives into a bit like a block of chocolate. And so it's like we've got this bit you can snap off there, and that's the, that's the work bit. And then you've got the bit you can snap off here, and that's the God bit. But the way that the Bible uh, paints the picture is it's not this block of chocolate that you snap bits off. It's much more like a T-shirt. It's like this woven garment. And so all the way through the Bible, you might have noticed, but if you read things like uh, the law in Leviticus and stuff, it's really random because half the time it's talking about um, personal hygiene and it's talking about what, what do you do if your ox gores somebody. And then the other half of the time, it's talking about sacrifices and worship and what do you wear and what are the smells. And this whole thing is interwoven because for the Jews, the Jewish mindset was not that there was sacred stuff and secular stuff, which is the way that we often think, it's that everything, the whole of creation, all that we do, comes under the rule of God. And that means our jobs that we're heading back to, our degrees that we go back to, they come under his rule too. It's just trying to figure out what that means and what that looks like. And so uh, when considering kind of a, a theology of work, where do we start? The starting place is to understand that God works. God works. And as soon as the Bible starts talking about anything, it's talking about work. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it describes that creation 
as work. That's God at work. And that actually was unique for the history of the time. So if you look at other creation myths from the same era, what you see in, for example, the Babylonian creation myths was that there were these gods and they were having a fight and then one god lost and that god died. And then the world was made out of the body of this dead god. And so for many uh, kind of ancient Near Eastern mythology, that the world was actually just the aftermath of a battle, of a fight between a, a couple of gods. The Hebrews saw, saw the earth not as the aftermath of a battle, but as the plan of a craftsman. God is a craftsman and he chooses to make something. And again, there's a difference here, and it's all to do with this thing of work with, for example, Greek mythology. So in Greek mythology, the history is um, creation came about in various stages, um, various ages of man. And in the early age of man, it, it's what they call the golden era, the golden age. And at that time in Greek, in Greek mythology, human beings and gods would live together in harmony. And in some sense, that's similar to the picture you get in the Garden of Eden. But the difference is they never worked. So at that point in Greek mythology, in the golden age, no one has to work. But in the Garden of Eden, we see really clearly that God works. And it's the same word in the Hebrew that describes human work. So God works. And so what we have to begin with is a God who gets dirt under his fingernails. And he chooses to do it. And um, it's not just that he works at the beginning, it's that he continues to work. So that's what we might call the providence of God or the provision of God. And in Psalm 104, verse 13 and 14, the psalmist says of God, He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, chateau neuf de pap to gladden the heart of Pilavachi, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. And so you see, God doesn't just work at the start. He doesn't just get his fingers dirty at the start, but he continues to work. He's always working. And Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So we can get more spiritual than God sometimes, and we can think work isn't a very spiritual thing. But what we see is God is a God who works, and we are made in his image. And so it's not just that God works, but that he designed us that we might work too. And um, what happens in Genesis is that God cultivates this garden, the Garden of Eden, but then he also leaves creation with this deep, untapped potential. So Eden, you can see in, in the story, is only a small area of the earth. And that's the area that God has cultivated. But outside of Eden, there's a wilderness. And God puts man and woman in Eden, and he puts us there to work. So it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And we, as human beings, are the only creatures that get job descriptions. So all the other animals that are made, they're made to team and to roam, but human beings are made to work. We get given this job description. And so I know this sounds crazy, and I know it sounds crazy because we're looking towards September now, and when September arrives, the bad weather arrives, and the, the, the days get shorter, and doesn't it become horrible when your alarm goes off and it's still dark and cold outside? And I know it sounds mad, but what I'm saying is even though 
Come November, we're going to be dragging ourselves out of bed and our bedrooms are going to be freezing and we're going to walk through the dark to a bus or to a train and we're going to sit with the living dead commuting into our jobs. Even though that's what work is for many of us, what, what the Bible says is that work is part of paradise. Isn't that crazy? Work is actually part of paradise. It's there before the fall happens, before sin comes into the world, and we're made to work. And so work is actually part of the blessedness of the Garden of Eden. And I'm going to go on and talk a bit why work sometimes doesn't feel like the blessedness of the Garden of Eden in a moment, but that's where we start from. And when we stop and we think about that, that actually makes a bit of sense, because although many of us maybe find our jobs really difficult and we would hate them and we would leave them at the drop of a hat if we could... We sometimes might fantasize about, you know, I have sometimes fantasized, if I could spend the rest of my life eating kettle chips and watching Sky Sports, I would be a happy man. And although there's part of me that fantasizes about that, I suspect that were I to spend the rest of my life watching Sky Sports and eating kettle chips, there might be something nagging somewhere inside of me that maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I've been shortchanged somewhere on what life is meant to be. And although we may not always enjoy our work and enjoy our jobs, we do want to do something with our lives and we do want to live a life of meaning. And that's because we're made and we're created to work. And the ratio in the Bible is God works for six days and he rests for one day. And so it's a six to one ratio. And what that teaches us is we can take a lot of work. It's not an excuse to be a workaholic, that's not what I'm saying. So you clearly see that there's a Sabbath in the Bible and that work has limits and that the first day that we're around is the seventh day. So the first day we're around is actually a day off. And all of that teaches us that rest and work are meant to go together, but still, it's a six to one ratio. And we can take a lot of work. And indeed, we're designed to work. We're created to work. And the final thing on this section is that um, work also has dignity. So it's the thing that separates us from the animals. But within the, within the realm of work, there aren't hierarchies of this work is better than that work. You know, that it's better to, to, to do manual labor than intellectual work or vice versa. There's no hierarchy in there. And sometimes what, what can happen in the culture is we have a certain idea of what's a good job and what's a not so good job. And there are statuses. And that's a mistake because what that can lead us to is to choose particular jobs. And many of us are at places now where we're going to be maybe thinking about what do I want to do long term with my life. We can end up choosing particular jobs because of a status that we associate it with in our heads. So I want to do that job even if it doesn't really suit my skill set because I know I want the kudos that comes from wearing a sharp suit and going into the city or whatever that might be. And in the Bible, you don't have that distinction, that separation between the really cool jobs and the not so cool jobs that you don't want to do. All work in the Bible has dignity. And it's difficult for us to totally appreciate how revolutionary this was when, when Genesis was written and the Hebrew God finally began to reveal himself. But um, a guy called Philip Jensen writes this. He says, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a noble and just statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. And in the Old Testament, God is a gardener. And in the New Testament, he is a carpenter. All work 
has dignity. Because when we do it, it reflects the fact that we're made in God's image, that he's a God who works. So the question uh, that we come to now is, well, why is work so hard? You know, if we're made to work, and that's part of how we're designed, why is it that work is such a horrible ordeal so much of the time? And the answer to that uh, we find in Genesis chapter 3. So this is when the fall happens, Adam and Eve sin. And then in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3, God says this to Eve. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so there's this curse that accompanies sin entering the world. And what it says is, um, in our world, we're made for two big things, among others. One is love, and another one is work. And under the fall, everything in human life falls under the curse of the fall. So love becomes a lot more difficult now that sin is in the world. So we all feel insecure and we feel ashamed and also because we're broken people, we hurt others. So love becomes difficult, but also so too does work. Work becomes harder, we're told that it's cursed. And so one thing that we might expect is that work is gonna be frustrating. The way that Tim Keller puts it is he says, work itself is not a curse but now it lies with all aspects of human life under the curse of the fall. So work itself can feel like the curse, but it isn't. It's fallen work that is a thing that's so difficult. And in terms of uh, what that actually means for us in reality, one of the things that it means for us is that we as people in our jobs, doing whatever, we will always be able to envisage more than we can actually accomplish. Is that what, have you found that? We'll always be able to imagine more than we can actually achieve. So let's say that you ended up kind of as a staff nurse or something in a hospital, and you think, right, I really want to improve patient care. And then the way you decide to go about it is you introduce some sort of a, like a check charts and things like that that have to be on the end of patient beds, and you want, to, you want to improve these checks so you don't have so many accidents. And then what can happen is, if you introduce that to the ward, sometimes the nurses on the ward might get a bit defensive and they might think, hang on a second, we're being checked up on here, we're going to maybe lose our jobs if we, if we don't fill in these charts. So they can react badly to that. And they can come to you and say, look, we don't like this. All you wanted to do was improve patient care. But then they come to you and say, we don't like this. And so how do you react? Sometimes we can then react by getting defensive. And it can be like, all I want to do is improve patient care. You people don't love the patients. And we get defensive, and that in turn causes a reaction. And so there might be one or two people on the ward, significant people, who either turn against us or who decide to leave the team. And morale in the team plummets. Now, that's not an unrealistic scenario. That's the sort of stuff that we'll face regularly. We'll want to do something, and it will be for the best of intentions, but either because of our lack of ability or the fact that we live in a hostile and difficult world, we will find ourselves frustrated. And one of the things that this means, and an extension of it, is that expect your job to be frustrating. I'm not saying that if you're in a frustrating job, you shouldn't look for another job. But what I am saying is, we'll never find a job that isn't frustrating. We'll never find it. 
whatever job, even if it's the best job in the world for us, if it ideally suits our skills and ideally suits our temperament, we'll never find a job that won't at times be frustrating because that's just the reality of the world that we're living in. And another um, consequence of the fall is it means that our work is always a potential risk for us. And because what it can become is all-consuming. And again, we probably have experienced this in our own lives, but you see it in the book of Genesis. And so once the fall happens, the story of work continues, and you get to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11 is the, tower, the story of the Tower of Babel. And in verse 4 uh, of that, the, the people say to themselves, come. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So work has shifted. Before the fall, it was to care for creation. After the fall, it becomes about making a name for ourselves. And isn't that what it is today in our world? Today, work is so much about making a name for yourself to have the best car, to be the most successful, to be better than everybody else. And that creeps into our lives in the church as well. And it's really the heart of it and the root of it is pride. You know, it's not just that I wanna be a good teacher, it's that I wanna be better than everybody else. It's not just that I wanna be a good sales assistant, it's that I wanna be better than everybody else. I wanna make a name for myself. I wanna work hard to do that. And um, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't work hard, but what I'm saying is the object of work is not and should not be to make a name for ourselves, to feel good about ourselves. And I've already shared about how I struggle with this because I associate being successful with being loved and so I have loads of issues around it. And this is hard for me. But ultimately, and again to quote um, Tim Keller, he says, religion says earn your life. Secularism says create your life. Jesus says, my life for your life. We don't make a name for ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We receive one. We're given one. And work, if we're not careful, becomes this distraction. And so where do we find ourselves as we kind of, I'll try and bring it to a bit more practically as we go out now. Where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves with this theology in a place where we know that we're made to work and actually many of us find meaning in work and we find joy in doing something significant and that's a good thing. But on the other hand, work is very frustrating and we can't always achieve what we want and we don't always get the job that we want and it can be really difficult. Work is on the one hand this thing where we're to serve people but on the other hand it can become a very self-serving thing. So how do we try and navigate the tension? How do we try and connect up what we do with the kingdom of God in a way that is reflecting the pattern that we see in the Bible? And I just want to suggest three things that we can do to make this possible. Whatever your job, whether you're a student, whether you're working at home, whether you're working uh, in paid employment, these are three things that we can do. First of all, see work as worship to God. Work is worship to God. Secondly, it is service to people. And thirdly, it can be creating the kingdom. Worship to God, service to people, creating the kingdom. That's what work can be. That's what it should be. And so first of all, work as worship to God. The Hebrew word for work is the same word that is for worship. It's the same word, work and worship. And in the Greek, there's a word latreo, which again means worship. We often translate it worship, but the literal translation can be to serve. It's an act of service. 
So for us, all the work that we do can be this act of service to God, this act of worship to God. And uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Two sections from that. First of all, do it with all your heart. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. And it can be easy to fall into the mindset of, okay, I'll work at it with all my heart when I get a better job. Can't it? I'll work at it with all, with all my heart when I'm actually doing something that I enjoy. When I have, but to, that's a luxury that we have today that most people throughout history have never had. Most people never had a choice about what they did. Paul, when he writes this to, to the Colossians, he's addressing slaves. So these guys don't have a choice. They can't go and get a better job or a nicer job. And he's saying to them, even though you're stuck in this job, which is really mundane and which you probably don't enjoy, I am saying to you, work at it with all your heart. And so what that means for us is whatever employment we find ourselves in, whatever work we find ourselves in, there's a place for doing something with everything that we've got. And one of the things that we see about God, what I've noticed about him in the Bible, is he actually quite likes a job well done. He's got, he's got this thing about excellence. And you see that in different places. One of the places is when he's building the temple and he says, right, I want that guy to be my craftsman because he's the best craftsman in the whole of Israel. Solomon, when he's improving the temple, he sends for a guy from another country because he can't find a good enough craftsman in this country to do the job. So he sends for someone else. If you look at people in the Bible, great heroes in the Bible like Joseph and Nehemiah and Daniel, all of them in positions in a, in a secular government, not a secular government, a government that wasn't Israel's government, they're all commended for their excellence. There's something about choosing to do something well, and the reason for that is because it can be worship, to see work as an act of worship towards God. Eric Liddell, the Olympic runner, um, who went on to be a missionary, he was, he was told by his dad once, his dad said to him, you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. And I wanna suggest that that's true. We can praise the Lord by making an Excel spreadsheet if we make it to perfection. We can praise the Lord by cooking some Heinz beans later on over a campfire if we cook them to perfection. There's something about doing something excellently before the Lord with all our heart that can become an act of worship. And the second part of it is, the first one is with all your heart. The second part is before the Lord. Do it before the Lord as if, Paul says, you're doing it for Jesus and not for men. And again, the temptation is, isn't it, <clears throat> in all of our jobs to, to really just want to do what you can to please the boss, the earthly boss. And so Mark Green talks about how often what we do is we live as atheists with our work and we don't really think that God cares about it. We don't really think he pays any attention to our work. We don't think that he's looking. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about people being given talents. And he says, look, the king gives these people talents. He goes away, he comes back, he sees what they've done with the talents. He sees how they've invested the talents. And he wants them to have really gone for it. And in that, we get a sense that God is asking that we would do something all out for him, as, again, as an act of worship. And that will look differently for each of us. But it's choosing to believe that God is paying attention to the work that we do. And that's not a pressure 
So it's not that we need to get first-class degrees for God to love us. That's not the point. We're not meant to be feeling guilty and being staying late because God is our boss and now we have to, you know, like do overtime. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is with the time that we have and the abilities that we have to do the best job that we can. And um, Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist pastor back in the 1800s, he once asked one of his domestic servant girls, what evidence is there in your life that you have become a Christian? And she answered and she said, now when I sweep, I sweep under the mats as well. There's something about choosing to do something excellently as an act of worship. Work can be worship to God, whatever the job, however mundane. Work is worship to God, it's also service to people. And um, Jesus tells us the two most important commandments are to love the Lord your God and love our neighbor. And what people often say is that when you meet people who are about to die on their deathbeds in hospitals or places like that, rarely do you find them talking about, oh my word, I wish I spent more time in the office. You know, normally what people are saying when they're about to die is, I wish I spent more time with the people that I love. And the memories often revolve around friendships and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's fair enough, but we also have to recognize it's like we are gonna be spending a lot of time in the office or the equivalent, driving the bus or working in the garage. And so it's not simply that we should spend less time working in order to love people more, but it's how can we look at the jobs that we have, the hours that we do spend working, and see them as a way of serving other people, and see them as a way of loving others and finding an outlet for what that might look like. And so one thing that that might mean is if we are in a position, and most of us maybe aren't, but if we are in a position where you have the luxury of being able to choose a job, to think not simply and solely in terms of what is the biggest paycheck, here, because that's how most of the people are thinking at these days at universities, is how can I get the most money for the work that I do? But to instead consider other questions like, what is the job that is most going to suit my abilities and my skill set? And also, what is the job that is going to really enable me to serve others in the way that I would like to do that? A friend of mine works in kind of uh, the music industry. She works for this music agency firm. And I was asking her, how do you connect what you do with the kingdom of God? And one of her, her answer was her responsibility is to look after certain music artists and things like that. And she says, what I try and do is, as their kind of agent, as one of the people that looks after them, I choose to see them as people. And I try and see them as uh, whole people, not simply a pay packet. And so when, when they're considering whether or not they should do a gig and things like that, I try and account for their quality of life and who they are and whether they're happy and not simply flogging them till they're absolutely knackered. And that's how I try and approach it. And however small we might think our influence is, each of us in different spheres have some measure of influence. Um, when we're Christians, the task is this. Use it to bless other people. Have you ever watched The Apprentice? That's the opposite. The Apprentice is, you know, it's all the backstabbing and trying to pick holes in other people and find a way to bring them down. Christianity is use our influence to bless others. If we're blessed by God, it's to be a blessing. And this is where we started on night one. It's like, it's not about I, 
It's not about us. If God chooses to use us, then it's only because he wants to use us to serve other people and to bless other people. And the temptation can be, if we do find ourselves with some small measure of influence in a particular company or in a shop that we work in or something like that, then the temptation can be, okay, well, I've got some influence, so now what I've got to do is I've got to hold on to it. I've got to protect it. I don't want to lose it. And there are different people in the Bible. Again, Joseph, Nehemiah, Daniel, Esther. They all found themselves in positions of power. And the point of that, and what the stories show us, is they were in that position for the benefit of others, to love their neighbor, to care for those who had less influence than they did. And if we don't do that, then what happens is these things, they get a grip on us and they become about our name. We in this country have more than most. And um, there's a Tim Keller quote. What he's doing is he's talking about Mordecai and Esther. And he's talking about how Mordecai says to Esther, look, you have been given this position of influence in the palace for such a time as this. This is not for you, Esther. This is that you might serve your people, that you might save others. And if you choose not to do that, then you've gone very wrong somewhere. And this is the quote. Keller writes, unless you use your clout, your credentials, and your money in service to the people outside of the palace, the palace is a prison. It has already given you your name. You may think that you have been given little because you are always striving for more, but you have been given much and God has called you to put it into play. It is natural to root your identity in your position in the palace, to rest your security in the fact that you have a certain measure of control over the, over the variables in your life, to find your significance in having clout in certain circles. But if you are unwilling to risk your place in the palace for your neighbors, the palace owns you. If our lives become about getting on the next rung of the ladder, then it's not that we have a career, it's that the career has us. Our jobs are to be service to others. And that can be the smallest ways. To serve someone kindly in a shop, to give them a coffee with a smile, to try and create an environment where we genuinely do prefer them. Work is worship to God, it's service to people, and it's creating the kingdom. And uh, again, whatever sphere we find ourselves, whether we're students or we're uh, working or in the home, there's a way of creating a culture that reflects the kingdom that we see in the Bible. And the whole point of the Bible is not that we're all gonna jolly off to heaven one day and we're gonna leave the earth behind. The point of the Bible is that the earth is being remade, that it's being made new. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we don't pray, may we go to heaven, we pray, may heaven come to earth. Would your will be done, your kingdom come? And we pray that, but also practically what we wanna try and do is outwork that and find ways of creating something of the culture of the kingdom of God in the places that we are. And that might mean if we are thinking about starting a business or teaching in a class or something like that, we try and find Christian principles that, that can help that. And there have been companies throughout the years that have been founded on these Christian principles, Roundtrees, Cadbury's, Lloyd's, Barclays, Guinness. They all started with Christian principles. They've obviously gone a astray somewhere, some of them, but they were started from Christian principles. Why can that not happen today? There's a guy who uh, runs a chain of shops in Watford called The Entertainer, they're toy shops, and he chooses not to open them on a Sunday. And that was just his decision that he made. And that he, I think he's suffered financially for that, but he's chosen, this is what I feel like the Bible's saying, 
And so I'm not going to do that. We can find ways. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it involves compromise. But it's, it's choosing to find a way where we can negotiate, where it's like negotiate. And it's like, look, I want these to reflect the kingdom of heaven. And that's a way to do it. Um, there's a guy called David who we work with. He's a friend of ours. And he was in an office working uh, several years ago now. And it wasn't a very nice office. It was pretty catty. People were slagging each other off all the time. And he really wanted to leave. But he felt like God told him to stay. And so he was trying to come up with ways of how can I create something more of a, you know, a gospel Jesus-like atmosphere in this place. And so what he decided to do one day was to buy everyone a box of chocolates. So he bought everyone chocolates. And then he sneaked into the office really early that morning and he hid chocolates in everyone's desk. So he, in one person he put it in the drawer, another person he put it under a pile of paper. And he went around and then he hid a box of chocolates, genius, on his own desk. And then went out, and then everyone came in later on that day, and one person after a few minutes said, oh, I've got a box of chocolates here in my drawer. And someone else said, oh, I've got some chocolates here under the paper. And then David was like, oh my word, I've got some chocolates here on my chair. And he says that from that point on, the atmosphere in the office actually changed because no one wanted to be horrible to the person that might have bought him some chocolates. But it's trying to find ways to create something of a culture and bring a change. That's what we're meant to be. That's why the Bible calls us salt and light in places of darkness. How else do we create the kingdom of God? We bring perspective as Christians. The point is not that we become amazing workers. The point is that we become amazing people. And so there's a wholeness to that. And so as well as wanting to work excellently, do our best, we also bring something of a, hang on a second, I'm going to slow down here. I'm not just going to rush headlong, willy-nilly into work, like this is the everything, this is my everything. There's a, there's a perspective that, that we can bring that others maybe won't. And so a friend of mine, he, he works, um, he's a financial manager, and he earns quite a lot of money. And a little while ago, he was thinking about upgrading his car. He had quite a nice car, a Mercedes. And he was thinking about getting the level up. And just as he was driving into the garage, he felt like the Lord spoke to him and said, why? Why do you want it? And he couldn't come up with a, pretty, he couldn't come up with a reason other than because it's cool. And he felt like God said, well, actually, on this occasion, I want you to downgrade. So he ended up downgrading to this really sort of small-engined car. And he describes this time where he was driving up to visit one of his clients. And because they're all absolutely loaded, they lived in this massive gated community. And so he pressed the little button and he drove up. And he had, I think he had like a, th a three-cylinder Citroen or something really small. And he drove up and, his, and he was meeting this client for the first time. And they said, you're my financial advisor and you're driving that. And why? And this person had like two or three BMWs on the drive. And he was able to say, well, actually, I'm a Christian and this is why. And... For me, I don't think all of that stuff is as, as much as it's made out to be. In the wake of the financial crisis in 2008, there were so many suicides because people lost perspective. As Christians, that's what we bring. Work is not the be-all and end-all of who we are, even if it is part of who we are. And the final thing is, in creating the kingdom, we've got to persevere. And um, Keller starts his book, Every Good Endeavor, with a story by J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien wrote this story because World War II started when he was working on Lord of the Rings. And he suddenly became overwhelmed by this fear that he might not be able to finish Lord of the Rings, which is his great kind of work that he spent his whole life on. And so he actually wrote a short story, and it's called Leaf by Niggle. And Niggle is a guy who's a painter, and he wants to paint. He has this image of painting an incredibly beautiful tree. 
And so he spends a lot of his time trying to paint this tree, but he keeps getting interrupted by things that happen in his life. And eventually he dies before, he can really, before he's really got very far. And all he's managed to paint is a single leaf on the canvas. And so once he dies, they take, the, they take the, kind of the canvas and they put it in the corner of a museum, nowhere very significant, and not many people look at it. But then when Niggle dies, the story continues, and he arrives and he finds himself in heaven. And as he looks around heaven, he sees the tree that he was trying to paint. And he goes up and he sees the leaves. And he realizes in that moment that even though he only managed to paint one leaf, it was a leaf of the tree of heaven. And what can happen is we go into certain jobs. Teachers, I'm going to change this school. Lawyers, I'm going to reform the justice system. Whatever else. And we can think, I'm going to absolutely turn the whole thing upside down. City planners, I'm going to build the most ecologically friendly city in the entire world. And then 10 years later, we've only built a couple of toilets. And what is easy to happen is we become disillusioned after a while and we can become cynical. This will never change. Nothing will ever change. I've only managed to affect it in this small way or that small way. But even on our best days, we may only manage to squeeze out a leaf. If it's a leaf of the future kingdom of God, of the heavenly city to which we are headed and which is headed here, then it's worth it and it's worth sticking at it. Let's not allow ourselves to become disillusioned. Expect it to be hard. Expect it to be difficult. But often the way that you move things is one inch at a time. And that requires more perseverance than anything else. There's a story about a vicar that moved into a church. And he wanted to get the piano from one side of the church to the other side. But the congregation was one of those congregations that freaked out and stuff like that. So the story goes that he managed to do it, but it took him a number of years. And the way that he did it is he just moved it an inch every week. I'm pretty sure it's not true because when it's slap bang in the middle of the church, they probably would have noticed, but it's a nice story. And the point it's making is just an inch by inch, degree by degree, persevere, find ways to create something of the culture. It's hard, and sometimes the methodology of how we go about it is, is confusing and difficult because we have to figure out what it looks like and take responsibility for our own circle of life. There is no formula, but the goals are clear. The goals are obvious. A culture that values the lost and the broken, a culture that prefers others, a culture that values justice and kindness and love is a culture that reflects the kingdom of God. God works. He made us to join in. Work is worship to God, service to people, and it's creating his kingdom.